Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O'White or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader, and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult, and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 27 of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Today's guest is Jim Penman. Jim is the founder and CEO of Jim's Group. Uh, Jim started a part-time gardening business while earning his PhD in history at La Trobe University. He launched a full-time mowing business in 1982 with a $24 investment. He originally aimed only at taking on subcontractors, but his business grew and he gradually began to specialize in the building up and selling of lawn mowing rounds. By 1989, he franchised his business, and since then, Jim's Mowing has become the largest franchise chain in Australian and the largest and best-known lawn mowing business in the world. Jim's Cleaning was launched in 1994, followed by more than 50 other divisions which now operate in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Jim's group now has over 4,500 franchisees and a turnover of approximately $500 million. Jim says the key to success in franchising is an overriding concern for the welfare of franchisees and constant improvement in customer service. I'm really looking forward to asking him about that today. He is still actively involved in the running of the business, is directly accessible to all his franchisees and to any client with a serious complaint. He is funding a research program into the epigenetics of social behavior, a continuation of his PhD work, which he believes could help in the treatment of mental illness and addictive disorders. His books, Biohistory, Biohistory, Decline of the West, and Every Customer a Fan are available on Amazon and from his website, biohistory.org. Well, I am so looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Jim. Yeah. How are you? Good, good, good to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you too. Uh, we were just chatting before we went on, uh, you know, started recording about uh, one thing you said is that it's been a very unique, your story is very unique and just reading, you know, your bio, that's so true. Tell us before we hear a bit more of your story in terms of how you got to be who you are and do what you're doing, Jim, tell us a bit about the context today. Well, I read a few things there, the stats, but what, is it, what does Jim's group look like now and what does being founder and CEO look like in, in 2021? Well, uh, <laughs> what do you say? We've, we've, <laughs> it's, it's doing very well. We're growing very, very fast. One of the peculiar things about gyms these days is about one third of our leads are unserviced. The, the demand for our services is vastly more than we can cope with. Wow. Which I attribute to, to the, the simple fact that we focus so much on customer service that people were, are very keen to... Um, they want, they want somebody who's going to provide good service, even though we make a point of not being the cheapest in the marketplace. So it's a very different philosophy. It's not what you see in, in business generally, you know, be, be cheap and advertise. We advertise little, but we focus wow. enormously on customer service. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I can't wait to ask you more about that because that is a very different philosophy, but I hear that and I, I can hear the wisdom in that. And, and so I hear that and go, well, no wonder you're experiencing more demand than you have supply for if you're if you're focusing on customer service. So I really want to ask you more about that. Before we do though, give our uh, give our listeners a bit of Jim's story. You know, tell us tell us as much as you want to share around uh, some of the story of how you became 
who you are today, particularly as Jim the leader? Well, it, it comes basically from, from me being a complete failure because uh, <laughs> I went to university, started in 1971, with the aim of becoming an ap academic. And, and the core of that was I wanted to understand the rise and fall of civilizations, which is, uh, so I started off in sociology, give that away pretty quick and focused on history. And then I, I completed my BA and then I went on to do a PhD. So my, my, I was quite confident that, that I, my ideas were good enough, were strong enough um, to get me a, a career in academia. Um, but I, I, I did something very foolish if, in, in one sense. If you want to be an academic, you've got to focus on one area. Like if you're going to be a historian, you're going to be the absolute world expert in, say, the Wars of the Roses middle phase in the 1460s in, in England, something like yeah. that. And not only was I not interested in one period, I wanted to look at all of human history and the broader, <laughs> the better, African history, pre-Columbian American, East Asian. And to understand those sort of patterns, I started to look at cross-cultural anthropology, how society is different, and also psychology and also zoology and genetics, trying to find patterns in that, which to me was essential to understand what's going on in human society but from an academic point of view, it's virtually suicidal because I, I, really, <laughs> I really didn't know much about any particular period. And, and when it came to, you know, to rate my PhD, um, they didn't have what to make of it. Two, <laughs> two actually examiners put a, a paragraph back, which my, which my supervisor said is completely unprecedented. You, you can't just respond to a PhD thesis with a paragraph. And, and the other one said something like, well, if this was a magnum opus at the end of an distinguished career then okay but you know who is this 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 guy who's <laughs> trying to overturn every idea about how society works so <laughs> there i was i was basically completely failed as an academic my whole career in in smashed into smithereens in my late 20s i was not only had no money i was deeply in debt Wow. And the only skill I had in any practical sense was gardening, which I used to do as a part-time student job, which I like because I like being outside and it's pretty good money. You know, you can make more money in your own business. So that's one you had to do. So I started mowing lawns and I had like 24 bucks um, in some very crappy old equipment, which soon gave up the gong. And I started from there. And, and I guess I, until that moment, I never had any thought of becoming successful a business of wealth mm. anything like that it just hadn't occurred to me but, but when i when my um academic career failed i knew the only possible way i could get my research going is i had to fund it and i need <laughs> millions of dollars of funding to fund an academic because it's not just a matter of history it's also things like all the research we do now is in the field of epigenetics and in biochemistry and stuff and i've got a team working on it yes um so I needed to be able to fund that. And I wasn't even an expert in the field. So that's why I had to become rich. And that, that was my simple idea. Somehow I had to be able to get the money to do my research. And that's always what's driven me. <laughs> that's fantastic. It's such a, it's such a clear vision for being, I, I guess, for the, the group being successful for you in terms of, well, what do I want to do with it? I want to be able to fund this really important research. Uh, I, I really would love to ask about your research you're doing at the moment. And we're sort of going to weave around into, into different places today. And I have to admit, I'm very fascinated by you and your story, Jim. So it's really easy to ask you, ask you questions. 
can you tell us a little bit about epigenetics and um, and the the current research that your team's doing? Basically, the conclusion I came to from my PhD work, which has been a lot developed since then, is that the key to history and cross-cultural anthropology and economics and everything else is character. Mm. The character determines that. So society, politics, the economic reflects the sort of the, the general average character of the population. So if you have a population which is, say, enterprising and um, ambitious and hardworking, you'll tend to have be wealthy. If you have a mm. kind of character which has very strong personal ties, you'll tend to have very fragmented politics. So you have civil wars and, and, and chaos and so forth. Mm. And what I did was suggest that this character really had to do with the way that animals control population in relation to food, food supplies. So that civilization in effect is a kind of character which is associated with limited food in animals. So what the research actually does is, is actually do experiments in limiting food to rats, as it happens, in various different ways at different times of life and looking at the different changes, the changes in epigenetics, in, in pheromones, in hormones, in, in proteins, cytokines, all kinds of different things, microbes even, and, and, and trying to understand what's going on and then from that work out a way to manipulate it, change it. Yeah, incredible. Uh, that's that's really interesting and, and fascinating work. And, and I can hear, as you described around your original PhD, how that that's a really, really big idea. You know, that's yes. uh, you're linking some uh, something that across, you know, looking at the character of civilizations to, uh, yeah, that's, so that's obviously something that's, that is unique to you is that there's an element of vision that showed up there in your PhD. You're looking, you're looking at civilizations and you're seeing a high level impact and strategy. Is that, is that something that has always been there with Jim's group as well? That similar ability to, to think high level like that, like you do with your PhD? I think the biggest similarity is, is, is I'm very unorthodox in my thinking. I'm not governed by anybody else. I've never cared what anybody else thinks apart from the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> what I was doing was outrageous. What I was saying was that all your historical explanations are all wrong. You know, why did the First World War break out? Well, it's nothing to do with politics or anything else. It's, it's actually very similar to what happens to make lemmings migrate. It's what I call a lemming cycle. Mm. Second World War broke out was an echo of the First World War which is to do with the way that the First World War impacted on children born towards the end of the war. So it was completely novel thinking. And by the way, anybody wants to know about this, www.biohistory.org. There's some nice videos in there which explain how it works. But anyway, so when I came to, when I came to look at, at the principle of, of franchising business, I wasn't constrained by what anybody else did at all. Mm. Now, I only, I only franchise in self-defense. What actually happened was that I was running a small business building up and selling lawn mowing rounds. And then another franchise system entered the market, VIP, came from Adelaide. And yeah. I'm just petrified of these guys. I thought they'd smash me. They had 250 franchisees. I had like a half dozen subbies. Wow. And they had all these offices and videos and, and, and all kinds of really advanced stuff. And I thought these guys are going to crush me if I don't if I don't 
you know, do this in self-defense. And I really didn't think I'd do anything more than just try and hold the line against them. In fact, when somebody asked me right when I first started what I would hope to do, I said, look, I don't know, but if it really works out well, I one day, one day, if possible, I might have as many as 100 franchisees. I actually said that. <laughs> That was the extent of my ambition. And if anybody told me one day I'll have four and a half thousand, we'll, we'll almost certainly hit 5,000 next year. I would wow. have said, you're an absolute idiot. You're a raving bonkers. No way. <laughs> but, so, you see, yeah. I had, but I had one principle in mind, and this is something that was very intense, very emotional. Mm. I wanted my franchisees to be fans. But that was my first priority. My first priority is the welfare of my franchisees. And I figure if I can make my franchisees really, really, really happy, then just maybe I can survive against this really powerful, well-financed interstate company, this national company that was threatening me. That, that was kind of the idea. So, you know, I set out to draw a contract up. Now, that was really hard because... I would, my thought was if I wanted to draw up a contract, I want something that I'd want to sign. Yeah. But lawyers don't think that way. They think, <laughs> okay, you're the franchisor, you want all the power. And so I said, <laughs> no, I want to give my franchisees all these rights. I want to give them the right to all jobs in their territory, but they can work wherever they want to. I want to give them the ownership of their customers. We can't take it off them. Um, all these stuff I want to put, I wanted that automatic right of renewal as long as they're compliant with no further charges. I want them to be able to build a business as big as it possibly could be with as many employees as they wanted, as many vehicles or trailers as they wanted, but with no extra fees. I need the base, same base fee as before. And the lawyer said, you're basically stupid. This is no, nobody does a franchise like this. This is, this is not proper. So I spent nine months largely arguing with lawyers, which was <laughs> very frustrating. I had to find one lot, got another lot, and then I got a contract which I thought was the best contract I could think of. And then I got all my people I wanted my founders together. Some people had bought more main rounds off me that I was offering a, you know, exchange for, and some some very good subbies I had. And I put them in a room and I gave them the contract and I said, "Okay, guys, look at the contract. What do you think?" And they said, "Well, we don't like this and this and this." So I changed it. So I had a contract, which is in terms of my first franchisees, the best contract that they could do. And the lawyer said to me, you're being crazy. This is not right thinking. You're going to want to modify this with time. You're going to want to give yourself more. They talked about more flexibility. And mm. what they used to say to me is, you're being too nice. Mm. And I said, no, I want, I want something you'd have to be mad not to join. Mm. And they said it, and they said you're going to actually want to water this down. I did the absolute opposite. With time, I put more stuff in place. I give my franchisees the right to change to a different franchisor if they're not happy. No other reason. If you're not happy with your own franchisor, go to somebody else and change across. No, no, and your own franchisor had no say. I gave my franchisees the right to vote out their franchisors, which, by the way, includes me when I'm direct franchisors. And <laughs> Later on, I gave them the right to veto changes to their own manual. These wow. were, this is not known, and nobody else in the world does this. And that's the same principle, John, really, isn't it? It's, it's looking at something totally through fresh eyes and said, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what they do. This is what I believe should be done. And I did it. Yeah. I, and what, what drove that for you at a deeper level? Why do you think, why do you, think you approach you approached that and continue to approach it so differently? 
Look, there's a temperamental thing behind it too. I, I was very, as a Christian, I'm very deeply impressed by the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Mm. That's a really extraordinary passage. It's something that was so alien to the world at that time. See, washing of feet is, is a very degrading option. It's something that slaves did. People who were owned would wash somebody's feet. Now, just occasionally, a really revered rabbi, his disciples would wash his feet as a sign of respect. Well, Jesus did it to his disciples. And that kind of servant leadership principle is very much the way that I think about life and think about franchising. If you're a leader, your job is to serve your franchisees. And people sometimes, franchisees sometimes refer to me as boss. And I say, no, I'm not your boss. You're the boss. You're the client. <laughs> I'm here to serve you, to help you to be successful. And that is that is my aim. So it's 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 very fundamentally Christian thinking, you might say. And, and that is the the core of the way I look at the world. But I also yeah. think good business sense. I don't think the two are any different. Jesus actually is a very good guide to business. The principle yeah. <laughs> of the parable of talents, for example. I mean, there's nothing more meaningful to me that God gives you talents. You're meant to use them in a way that, that is useful, that does something. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree. And I love, uh, you know, it's been really interesting doing these interviews with leaders from all around the world in different contexts, um, in different roles. And one thing that has come up again and again and again is a perspective as a leader to come in and say, my people aren't there to support me or serve me. Mm. I am there to support and to serve my people. And it's a fundamental difference, I think, between it's something that I think the greatest great leadership has that. And if, if leaders want to step into a and really become the sort of leader that people would want to follow, which is what I hear you saying as well. You wanted to be the sort of, uh, you wanted to, you wanted to lead an organization where people would be, Oh, I have to sign up for that because I, it's, it's just, um, it's so, it's so fair. You have my best interests at heart. And, and if when people want to lead like that, then I think serving people is sort of one oh one. It's, it's really the, the first thing you can do to, to lead like that. But I don't think everybody likes me, though. I can be a very, very tough character. I'm the only person in Jim's group that can delete a complaint or a poor survey, which is a very, very big thing with us. Mm. And franchises get very upset at me when I won't do it. I say, you've got to give me evidence. You've got to show me that the problem was priced, which is never a complaint with us. It wasn't some other aspect of poor service. If there's a problem with the client, you've got to show me that the client is now happy with you, that you've, you've made them, you've done the right thing, you've fixed the job. You've turned up, you've done it, they're content. And if they can't produce evidence, I won't take it off. And they get very angry at times and quite abusive. They'll even say things like, like, oh, you know, you're a hypocrite. You say you've got to put franchisees first, but I've got, you know, I've got mental illness and mental stress because you won't take away these complaints that are so unfair. And what I always say to them is, listen, the problem with that is the reason that you can make a good living in Jim's group is because we've got so much work. And the reason we've got so much work is because we are so fanatical about customer service. That the customers aren't the ultimate point of this exercise. You are. But for you to be successful, we've got to give great customer service and we can't compromise on that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I love that perspective. When did you have that revelation? Do you remember about the importance of customer service? When I was eight. When I was <laughs> eight years old, I, um, I did a... I used to... Um, 
I did a um, thing. We used to have a thing called Bobber Jobs for the Cub Scouts to raise money. And you yeah. go and knock on a neighbor's door and you'd offer to do a job for a small amount of money. And this neighbor across the back fence, Mr. Tapley, got me to do a job. And then he said, you want to have an ongoing job, raking my driveway and stuff. And um, so I, I took that out. That was my first job. <laughs> and uh, I remember one time I was, um, I was, I didn't need a live driveway rake, but he wanted me to take some, some garden clippings to the, to the compost. And on the way, I dripped some. And this guy, who was very, very gentle man, he was very kindly. And my, my father was a bit fierce. <laughs> Mr. Tapley was very gentle. He just said to me, looked at me in a very disappointed way and said, if you're going to do it like that, I might as well do it myself. And I felt <laughs> so ashamed. I, I, I'm, never, I'm never going to let this guy down ever again. Mm. <laughs> And uh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that. What have you learned about customer service? It's so central to what you do. For, for listeners out there who might be hearing this and thinking that's, yeah, maybe we have lost focus on, on what's most important. We focused more on strategy X, Y, or Z for our, for our marketing and actually coming back to just delivering, uh, being fanatical about making sure our customers have a great experience with us. What have you learned about great customer service? You just, you just want your customers to be raving fans. And in a sense, of course, that's how I look at my franchisees. They're my primary customers. There's no really no different, but they're the important ones because, because fundamentally we've got so many of those other customers. We haven't got enough franchisees. We never have enough. Hmm. Um, look, it, it's just a case of, yeah, I have a standard. I have, when I was mowing lawns, I had a standard which was really, really high. For example, in the early days, back in the 70s, um, I used to get very frustrated by edges. Now, now lawn mowing, one of the things about lawn mowing is it's actually not that difficult to mow lawns well. It's quite difficult to do the edges correctly. And mm. I had a wheel, so I could go along the concrete edges and cut it very neatly. And then I'd, I'd cut it with the, with the mower and I put the left-hand wheel on the concrete. And because mowers cut clockwise, they'd suck from the left. So I could do a really neat cut, but... I couldn't get the other edges. I couldn't get around the trees or the clotheslines or the retaining walls. And there was this little scruffy bit of grass. Now, you know, no customer ever said to me, this is not good enough, never. But it mm. used to really bug me. And then one day I was in the mower shop, which I used to go to, it was in Eltham at the time. And this guy um, who'd been in the business for, for decades. And I used to actually he said to me once, he said, you know, Jim, you look after your customers better and your equipment worse than any any contractor I know, <laughs> because I was always bringing stuff in with the most ridiculous things wrong with it, which is a bad <laughs> idea. I just wasn't very good with machinery. Yeah. Um, but I came one day with equipment to be fixed. And because I was such a good customer, he looked at it on the spot. And I was wandering around the shop just while I was waiting for him, looking at it. And I saw this really weird thing in the corner. This is in the 70s. It's a long pole, had a handle <laughs> in the middle, little engine on one end. And on the other end, there was this plasticky thing with a bit of white cord sticking out. And I said, Tom, what, what's that thing? And he said, it's a brush cutter. And I said, what is it? And he said, and he said, well, it's, it's got this little nylon cord thing. And you basically pull this cord here and starts the engine. And the nylon cord whips out and it goes around and it cuts the grass without damaging the trees. And I said, Tom, how much is it? And he gave <laughs> me a price. Said, That's a lot of money. That's more than a mower. And I had no money. I was an impoverished student. But yeah. I put it on the spot because I had to do that job perfectly. And when I had that, I could do the job in a way that no client could do for themselves. Because even if you use this thing with the server brush cutter, 
You don't know how to use it properly if you're not a contractor. You've got no control. It looks horrible. Yeah. But I could do it really clean and neat. And even when I finished mowing, I, I, I brush cut the front and the back, and then the, the, I brush cut the nature strip, the front and the back, and then I'd walk down the driveway. And I was walking down, I'd leave the brush cutter going, and I'd rev it a bit, and I'd take the grass from the cracks in the driveway, and I'd blow them up. And people would say to me, I never knew my lawn could look this good. Mm. I just did everything perfect. And it was so easy to find clients. They just come from everywhere. <laughs> just because of the quality of the service you were giving yes. people. But it went far beyond money. And this is the thing I always say to people. It's not, the, it's not that I'll do good service so I can make more money. Mm. I'll do good service because that's my nature to give good service and because it's offensive to me to give anything less than good service. And it's the same with franchisees, the same with clients. It doesn't matter. It's a really, really deep emotional drive. I mm. really want to delight people. And one of my favourite jobs on Sunday evening, I ring up people who hit major anniversaries like 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Yeah. And I think to them, and it's a great experience because they tell me how much difference it makes to their lives. Mm. You know, one guy was saying to me that uh, I asked how he got into it. And he said, well, I used to work for a retail. And one morning, it was long hours. And one morning, my then four-year-old son said to me, Daddy, why can't you have breakfast with, with, breakfast with us? <laughs> and he said he drove to work and he was crying mm. on his way to work. And then he got there and he, and he quit the job on the spot, basically. <laughs> and, and he bought a Jim's Mowing franchise. And he said to his son so many times, that was the greatest thing anybody ever said to me. Thank you for that. He said he yeah. thanked his son so many times. Now, it's not because his income is, I think it actually makes a bit more money than he used to. But the biggest thing, he's been able to see his son growing up and all those years that he would have lost. Now, that kind of story to me is the essence of everything that we're trying to achieve. And that's what gives me a lot more satisfaction than having a whole lot of money in the bank. Yeah, you're right. That's what makes it all worth it, isn't it? That's that's a beautiful story. Uh, looking, back at, looking back at your story, I'm interested in the ceilings you've hit along the way because your, your gym, you're there going maybe 100. Do you remember the first time Jim's group really hit a ceiling where you went, oh, wow, okay, um, how are we going to break through the ceiling? Was it ten? Was it when you had ten franchisees, a hundred, a thousand? Do you remember the first sort of ceiling you hit where you had to really change some of the way that you led or the way you managed as a in your role? Um, it it sort of went so far beyond what I expected. You know, I had this goal of maybe having a hundred, maybe, and by the end of the first year, I had sixty. People were just swarming in. I couldn't believe. Wow. Um, Look, in a sense, I really didn't hit it. The, the, the ceiling that I hit, the, the, the really serious one, was up until a couple of years ago, we were stuck just below 4,000. We had like yeah. about 3,800 franchisees, and we stayed that way for about three years. Mm -hmm. that, that was very frustrating. Uh, in fact, other divisions like cleaning were growing, but mine was actually going backwards. And we had to really rethink what we were doing and how we were doing it and we just launched a whole series of initiatives like um different ways of selling franchises for example and different forms of finance and stuff so we wouldn't lose people and and we took the prices way down and we bought back quite a few regions ourselves did a whole lot of stuff and, and 
And that that was the biggest breakthrough. I mean, the mowing division alone has grown about you know fifty franchisees net in the last six months alone. It, it's, wow. it's it's exploding. And so sometimes you just have to look at what you're doing and 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 yeah. But but it, look, I think people often get a misunderstanding about business. They sort of think somebody's going out there doing something ordinary and they have some brilliant idea and suddenly they're a multi-millionaire and you know, everything's going bonkers. But it's, it's actually not like that at all. The, the biggest difference is if you're, to be successful in business, you look at what you do every day and you mm -hmm. ask yourself the question, how can I do that better? It's not one idea, it's thousands of little ideas. And I mean that literally, there wouldn't be one day of the week, not evening, not any time, not weekends, not Christmas day, not nothing, where I'm not asking myself the question, how can we do it better? How can I give better service to my franchisees? How can I give better service to my clients? How can I give better service while also cutting costs? How can I look after my staff better? How can I, how can I be more effective myself? What do I need to do to change myself to be a better, a more effective leader? All the time, answer that question. And that is the difference. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that is that is such a great uh, question to be asking yourself. How can I do? How can I become a better leader? How can I serve my customers better? I'm interested in your routine and what your day looks like as founder and CEO of of Jim's Group. More about just Jim, the person behind an organization of that size. Can you tell us a little bit about some, I guess, some of your key routines in terms of um, anything that you'd share around self-care, around work-life balance, around uh, the big, I guess, the things that you focus most on. You mentioned the Sunday night phone call, you know, for anniversaries. Can you tell us a little bit about how you structure your time when you're leading an organization that's, that's now so large, but also growing so quickly? <laughs> well, look, the first thing about myself as a leader is I am incredibly incompetent at most things. I, I really am. <laughs> I, I have exceptionally poor people skills, notoriously bad. My, my wife says I'm just, she actually says I've got, I've got a mild form of Asperger's. I'm so bad at, at, at reading social cues. I'm very <laughs> impatient. I can upset people a lot without meaning to. I get yeah. very angry quite easily. Um, I'm not very good at detail work, you know, in terms of setting things up and, and, and like training systems and so forth. I'm not very good at finance. I'm not particularly good at IT. I, I really, I, I don't have many skills. Now, the great thing about that is because I am so thoroughly incompetent at most things, I have to try and find good people to, to be what I'm good at. <laughs> So I, I have extraordinary people. Um, my um, divisional manager, a guy called Rocky, is just amazing. He is just fantastic at organizing staff and getting things done and working out training systems and communicating and so forth. And then I have my Cynthia, who's my wonderful finance head. She is amazing. She cares far more for my money than I do. She always <laughs> call me off for spending too much and can you save money? And you know, I just have had to threaten her with with a with a with a machine gun to get to set the pay rise. She's so dedicated. And then I had this wonderful um guy Kerem who's just started as IT head and he's he's an amazing guy. He's so fanatical about things. my wife is 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 wonderful. She's been a great helper. She's running the marketing department. She's sort of like self-taught as a builder. She's just an amazing lady. So I've got people around me who are incredibly capable and they can do the things that I can't do very well. So what do, what do I do on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, 
it's a very strange job. First of all, I'm very keen on exercise. Um, yep. This morning so far, um, I, had a, I have a half hour run, usually at least a half hour vigorous exercise every day. Mm -hmm. uh, finish off warm with a cold shower. Um, I drive my son to school, um, which I think is really important. I don't think anything, no, no, no other success can compensate for failure in the home. And I think kids, I've got 10 children, and I think children are absolutely as much the point of life as anything. Wow. So I, drive my, um, I, I spend a lot of time dealing with complaints with customer service. I'm the only person that can delete complaints. And that's an opportunity to have a look at understanding why they're happening and to mm -hmm. try and coach people to do it better and to see what changes in the computer can make it better. I have a meeting once a week with my IT teams talking about the systems and what we're doing and how we can improve them. I spend just time, I, I do things, I manage them by wandering around. I wander around the office. I go in and chat to our group called Jim's Plus, which is where we sell our surplus leads to independent contractors. I spend time with them and talk about how they're going and what they can do better. And, and they're very excited about hitting new records and all kinds of things. And they're all a wonderful group of girls. And just chat to the people who are doing divisional support and how we can do better at that. I go and have a chat to Cynthia about finance, maybe. Um, a lot of emails. I, I'm very contactable. Any every franchisee, as you said in the intro, has my phone number and email address. And I, mm -hmm. they can ring me anytime, daytime, nighttime, weekends. It doesn't matter. If I'm in church, I won't pick up the call, but that's about it. So <laughs> I just I just stay very contactable. And what I do a lot of, I don't know, in, in a sense, I don't do very much at all. Um, but I spend a lot of time listening, just trying to work out what's happening, being in touch with people. Some of the most valuable actual insights come from franchisees contacting mm. me and saying, I'm not happy with this. Now, quite often it's because they're not doing the right thing. And then I try and work with them to see what, how they can improve it. But sometimes a system is wrong. Sometimes mm. our software is wrong. Sometimes the franchisor is doing the wrong thing. So that ability to be in contact with you know, four and a half thousand people is, and also all of my staff is incredibly mm. valuable. And you've got to, I, I believe in working at depth. If you just, if you just deal with it, I don't know if you've ever see, you've seen the films, uh, the, the series, Min Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. You, do you remember, you ever seen those? No, I haven't, no. It's, it's really funny stuff. But one of the problems that Hacker has, the, 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 the minister, yeah. is that all his information comes from basically his senior civil servants. So he doesn't know what's going on. He has no clues. Now, I remember I used to work for the Department of Civilization when I school for I left, I took a gap year yeah. and I worked there for six months. And it was the most incredibly slack place you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and I, I actually, I later, later time I had a chance to talk to the uh, a minister. He was a minister in the Whitlam government. And, and he said, oh, well, they were all flat out in my department. And, and well, I didn't say so, but I said, not in your nilly, you've got no idea. <laughs> because you would never talk to a pleb like me and ask me what I was doing. And I would have told you, I, I, I'm desperate for things to do. And even then, I can't even occupy half my time. Yeah. So you, you work at depth, you understand the nitty gritty of what's going on. Like, just as an example, my, in, um, we had, a, we had an attempt to launch a trade exchange some years back, which is a terrible fiasco, lost a lot of money, stupid idea, everything went wrong. But there was, <laughs> this, there was this young, there was this lady called Megan, single mother in her 40s, who was there and she just impressed me. She was just a good worker. And I gave her a, a pay rise and she, had, she actually had tears in her eye 
because she said, I've never, ever been given a pay rise by anybody. Wow. I tell you what, she's now the head of um, one of my departments. And she is the most fantastic manager you could possibly imagine. She is so dedicated. She is so full of ideas, of energy, of initiative. She's a great leader. She's inspiring. People love her. They work mm. hard for it. She demands a lot of people, but they love her for it. She's just such an amazing lady. But I tell you something, in a normal business, how could the CEO of a company even know what somebody like Megan had, what potential she had? Mm. Because I would go and talk to people. Or in another case, we had a young guy, Joel, who was occupied to do some work. Um, no, no degree, no nothing. He was doing um, some basic administrative work just on a temporary basis. And But I, I, I sort of talked to him a bit, got to like him, moved him across into um, insurance as the assistant in the insurance department. And he just had ideas. And, mm. and he just was talking about websites and stuff because I used to go in there and chat. He's now the head of my um, social media department and he's one of my, <laughs> my top managers and he's an amazing guy. He's had a huge impact on the business. But how would you know if you don't talk to people? <laughs> yeah, you're so right. Uh, I think that that, ex that accessibility and, and I hear two elements to your accessibility is customer service is obviously central because you're accessible for complaint. You read complaints, you're the only one who can delete them serving your franchisees that's customer service by being available to them whenever but then obviously accessibility to your people uh, on your team as well is uh, is is part of who you are and it sounds like part of the reason for a lot of your success in getting the best out of people but also finding it sounds like some real hidden gems people that others might have overlooked where you've seen something in them and just acknowledged it and rewarded it and they've grown to be some of the best people on your team yeah yeah and the, the, the people that are most effective often don't sound very good like i've had I, I had one particular manager who was so impressive he just sounded great he just gave all this great talk and i had a business advisor telling me, he said this guy is fantastic this guy is so good and uh he was actually uh he he was he was no good at all when you actually look at what he was doing, he sounded good, but but he just he just wasn't effective. And yet, someone who was a junior subordinate under his control actually proved to be a fantastic manager. So mm. it kind of yes, I understand why so many businesses get into a mess because the people people in charge just don't know what's going on. Like yes. I was reading a story about uh, Blockbuster and about mm. the failure of Blockbuster, and people think Blockbuster failed because. The fact that uh, you know online came on and everything else and the you know netflix and stuff but in actual fact they failed well before that this is video stores mm. um but they, they it was it was amazingly incompetent and the people in charge that didn't listen to what was being told them all the time so there was one franchisee who actually was quite successful and he was telling them all the time you've got to do this and this and this and he was doing it and he wow. was succeeding and he was making it work but they wouldn't listen to him mm. Um, and it, but so by contrast, um, this lady called Sharon, who was actually, um, she started as a cleaning franchisee. She bought a regional franchise, which is how our system works and looked after group franchises. And she was phenomenally successful. And then I came to her and I said, Sharon, I, I want to give you the dog wash division for you to run. And she's done that. And that's been amazing. It jumped from 60 to like 170. Wow. What she's done is she's worked out different ways of selling. 
she, mm. she has a different method, a different approach. And we've looked at that and we adapted. I talk to Sharon all the time, of course, and we've learned from that. And, and we now apply that much, much more widely and it's phenomenal. So by being in contact with lots of people, you get great ideas from everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, are there any keys to finding great people that you've learned over the years? Uh, I would say I'm the most incompetent interviewer you could possibly imagine. I haven't got a clue. Um, this, this IT head, which we really, I mean, he's only been enrolled for a few weeks, but my goodness, um, I interviewed him along with my wife and some others. And um, I said, his language is terrible. <laughs> he doesn't speak very good English. Um, yeah. And, um, I didn't favor him actually, but my wife said, no, and I thought somebody else would be there. And, and, and Lee said, no, no, this guy's good. He's got the right kind of mind. He thinks, he thinks in terms of systems and stuff. You've got to choose him. So I said, all right, okay, well, I'll listen to you. Cause he has had a good track record. Mm. And it just turned out to be his, his, so far he's doing absolutely brilliantly. And I couldn't pick it, but she did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big believer in interview panels because of exactly that. And, um, and, and vice versa as well. Sometimes you think this person's just amazing. And then someone else goes, but didn't you pick up on that big red flag? And you go, well, no, I, that, that wasn't for some reason I completely missed that. Cause I was so in awe of this part of this part of it. I, I think, um, interview panels are, are really helpful from that regard. Um, I just, I just don't know how John, if I, you're going to ask me one particular gift that yeah. I really like. I would say the ability to choose people well. And if I had yes. that, I'm going to be a billionaire in six months because honestly, it's the biggest thing holding me back. I just don't know how to do it. I'm yeah. really, really terrible at it. I make yeah. dumb mistakes. I've actually got great staff. I have a very, one thing I'm very proud of is that my staff in general are, are very long lived. I have very, very low attrition. But the one exception is at the senior level, I have been so bad at picking the right people. I've just had person after person. I've taken people who've been successful as franchisors, as divisional franchisors. I brought them in and it just failed again and again and again. So my, my middle to junior staff are fantastic. Very, very hard to find the right people to do the senior roles. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I'm just incompetent. I really don't know. <laughs> I mean, seriously, when I look back at my career, I think, how can anybody who's such an idiot as me ever been successful? I look at all the <laughs> things I've done, um, picking the wrong people, persisting with things after I should have dropped them, um, just not just not understanding. I don't know. I mean, I'm 69 and I've only just started to learn how to run a business and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a rank amateur. I, I really haven't got a clue. There's so much that I, I, I don't know how to do work very well. I just, I just get better, that's all gradually very slowly i i love that though i think there's a real gift in in being aware of your own limitations because like you said it 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 really does get rid of any pride that could pop up and stop you from seeing that someone else's ability because there's nothing <laughs> you just go well i know that i'm not actually any good at that and i want to find someone who's world class i want to find someone who's a hundred times better than me at that skill and I think that's that's something that uh, I've noticed a lot of great leaders have is that ability to say, I want to have a team that absolutely show me up in in every area. They're so talented. I want that team, and I want to treat them well and lead them well. So that hearing you talk like that, I I, I guess for me it's not surprising then that you have um, been able to 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 lead and and have so many people who have 
done really well because you think like that? One of the things, very few useful things I got from academic studies, useful to business that is, is the idea of motivation, which is from, from David McCubbin, who's a social psychologist. So there's three basic kinds of motivation. There is power, there is affiliation, and there is achievement. Power is wanting to be better than somebody else. Affiliation is wanting to be liked by other people. Achievement is wanting to get things done. Mm. And um, what you often see in business is people who have got a very strong power um, motivation. In actual fact, he looked at US presidents and judged them by their um, inauguration speeches. And for example, someone like um, Ronald Reagan is, 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 a, is a power oriented person, whereas Jimmy Carter was achievement. Now, interestingly, in politics, American politics, power oriented leaders tend to do better. But what I've found in business, it's achievement oriented leaders that do better because we're not interested, they don't care. If somebody has a good idea and they prove to be right, I will emphasize that again and again. I say, you were right and I was wrong. I said it to Lee about this decision. I said, you were so right. That was such a good decision. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm always willing to give credit to people. I think that's, that's very useful. If you're the kind of person that always wants to be right, and you're not likely to listen and say, hey, no, I'm wrong. And then and let somebody else show you. And then you listen to some other person. And, and that that's a that's an ability. Oh, there was an interesting thing about um looking at leaders in, in American business. And I, I one thing I do actually, which I'd recommend to anybody, is I, I I read and listen to a huge amount of books, probably at least two books a week, mm. about all kinds wow. of subjects, a lot about business, but politics, all kinds of things. But one of the things I remember reading about was the um, people who are most successful in business did not tend to be those who were ahead of their class. They tend to be very, in, in, in college, or university, they tend to be very average student. The mm. really good ones went on to become, you know, investment bankers and, and lawyers and so forth like that, the smarter ones, accountants mm. and so forth. But the people who were more mediocre were the ones that could actually go out and find the talents they didn't have. Wow. Yeah. Uh, speaking of books, what, uh, you know, what would be a couple of books that you gift the most, you know, if you have a great employee or you, uh, you have a friend and, and, um, and you want to invest in them as particularly from a business sort of perspective, are there any go-to books that you would find yourself gifting to others? Look, there's, there's so many. Um, one book I've read quite recently on the, on the, um, recommendation of my daughter one of my daughters actually is atomic habits yes which, which is, have you, have you, are you familiar with that yeah i have i have read atomic habits it's a great book that's an amazing book and it just talks about how if you look at the way that, that he thinks and stuff a lot of that actually works the way that i do it in terms of exercise and diet and so forth but in terms of how you establish good habits and how you get rid of bad ones it's really really great thinking one of the books that i actually actually bought i loved it so much i bought copies multiple copies and gave it to all my key staff was uh, no no rules rules about netflix um ah, okay i haven't read that one amazing and one of the things they talk about is is i mean there's many brilliant ideas in it but that you look at your staff and you put a very tough line you say okay if somebody wanted to quit what what would be my attitude would i would it be a must keep whatever i must keep this guy or okay to keep or I wouldn't mind and let, let him go and he said the thing to do is you look for the must keeps the people who are really spectacularly good and 
the ones who you really should let go, well, then let them go. If you, if you don't mind if they go, then let them go. So you mm. have a quality team. You have really, really great people. And you and those who are great, you just give all the freedom, the independence, the rewards, the flexibility. And you just give them everything they want. That's a wonderful book. And it's been quite um, revolutionary. Yeah, that's that's genius. I love that. So must keep. So you look at your people and you think, who are my must keeps who are okay to keep and and it you know actually wouldn't wouldn't really matter if they if they left and you out of that you look at your must keeps and you go well let's just give them anything and everything <laughs> to make sure that they never never want to leave let's particularly focus on them and if anyone else in those other categories does want to leave then let them go but i think identifying those must keeps must have been a real game changer for you well, the, the idea certainly was something that we pushed through. We've actually applied to some extent, but you, you actually actively remove the people who are other you you don't mind losing. Um, yes, it, it's a tough process. Netflix actually doesn't have a, a higher turnover than most companies, and it's nothing like the the brutal thing they used to do at um, GE, which is um, you get rid of ten percent every year before performance. That's just dreadful stuff. I hate that kind of thing. Yeah, I think me too. It's an awful corporation, and the way it's been run has been abysmal. I'm reading a book about how the G value has collapsed so utterly, and it's not surprising the way it was written, including by Jack Welch, that he was revered, but he was mm. he was a terrible leader, and, mm. and, that, and that brutal ways of treating people is just extraordinarily bad. I would never, ever, ever, um, and it leads to competition. Because instead of people working together on a project, it, it's this brutal struggle for survival, knowing that you know if you're going to be better than somebody else, and you don't want yes. to let anybody else get ahead. Um, but yes, so they, their turnover isn't higher than in other industries, but they do tend to let let more people go. It'd be generous with them, but they just push them out the door, which is a little harder in Australia, but you can still do it. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those things where it. It is, and, and I hear this about you as well, is, you know, the lawyers might have said that you were very nice in terms of the contracts, but I love the distinction. I think it's Patrick Lencioni who talks about the distinction between kind and nice. And I hear a lot of kindness in how you operate. But hey, kindness, if you think of parenting as a great example, being kind as a parent is is not about always being nice. There's a lot of moments, if you want to be a great parent, then you can't constantly be making decisions based on what, you know, uh, a, a five-year-old or a 15-year-old is going to say, gee, I really love you for making that decision as a parent right now. Um, you, But being kind is do it authentically wanting the best for that person and choosing choosing what's best for them. And I hear that's a really big distinction. And I think a lot of not-for-profits in particular struggle with that because they go, we just want to be really nice. It's like, no, no, some you want to be kind is what you really want to be. And sometimes to be kind, you have to make really hard decisions. And like you said, it's about being generous in those moments. And it's about it's about doing it in a kind in a, and the healthiest way you can. But it definitely doesn't mean you don't make hard decisions. Yeah, it doesn't mean to say you're always nice to people too, because sometimes we do terminate franchisees. I mean, we have a whole systems of warnings and coaching and all kinds of things. But sometimes if a franchisee cannot cannot perform at the proper level, then we have to push them out. We have to say, you've got to go. You can go independent, whatever. We don't mind if you take your clients and go independent, but you cannot stay with us because you're letting down every franchisee. See, what we have and the way I see it, and, and I think 
one of the reasons I have good staff in the whole is because it, it's not about making Jim rich. I don't actually live a very luxurious life. You know, we, we have, you know, I drive a, a $5,000 car and I buy my, buy my trousers from Kmart and, and holiday to me is, is going up and working, cutting blackberries on, the, on my farm. Uh, I don't live a rich life myself, but we have a moral mission. And mm. the mission is my research program, obviously very much so, but it's also in terms of the franchisees, what we can do for them and being successful. And the trouble is if we have somebody who's giving poor service, it's not just themselves are looking down, they're looking down everybody else. Yes. And that other franchises could be short of work. And see, the thing that I'm, one of the things I'm most proud of is, is you can, you can, is what you can, something you can state statistically. If you look on the internet and have a look at the proportion of people who start mowing and gardening business, this kind of thing, and fail in their first year, it's in the region of 90%. And you can look at the statistics on this. They're there. There's, there's a website called the Cleaning Janitorial Service Association in America, which actually mm. reckons that 95% of cleaning businesses fail within a year. Okay. Our, our failure rate in terms of people leaving in the first year is 12%. And that's not all failures. And in mm. fact, about 7% based on us have a report poor income. That's the difference. Mm. That 12% includes people who've just decided to get another job or they might have had health issues or they might have got independent, all kinds of different reasons. So mm. the difference between that, that 90% failure and this perhaps 10%, 8% failure, whatever it is, is, is the mission that we're on. And, yeah. and everybody's, everybody's got to work towards that because it makes so much difference. You're not just talking about, you're not just talking about one person you're talking about thousands of people and their families and and we have, we have so much responsibility mm. when you when you are a leader you actually change people's lives there's something that happened um a couple of years back mm. in perth um where one of our franchisees went crazy and he killed his three little girls and his wife killed them mm. Mm. and that was such a terrible, terrible shock to everybody. Now, I didn't know this person personally. I probably met him at training. Yeah, but I yeah. went over there to talk to the franchisees. And we had a meeting in a, in a golf club there. And most of the franchisees in the entire state turned up. And I tell you what, people were, so, we were all so upset. People were in tears. It was such a, a terrible, terrible thing. Because, because in a sense, there's this sense that we're a family, that we yeah. support each other. And I, I said to them at that meeting, I said, what can we do to reduce the chance of this happening again? Now, this wasn't anything to do with his business, by the way. He wasn't happy. He's actually said, he said his business was very positive. He had a mowing business. Yes. But I said to them at the time, what can we do to reduce the chance of this kind of horror ever happening again? Mm. And they came up with all sorts of ideas. One of the things Trey said, for example, that we, we, people should have more access to help issues. So what we decided to do is to put a, a freeze fragment together with all the emergency numbers, the health numbers, the concern numbers, and yeah. we sent that one of those to every franchisee. Somebody suggested that maybe if there were mentors amongst the franchisees, unpaid mentors who would just be available to talk to somebody who needed it. And um, so... I said to him, well, look, that's a lot, that's a lot to ask. You know, who would be prepared to do such a thing? And you know what? Most of the people in that room put up their hands and we would volunteer. That was that sense of feeling unpaid to do wow. this counseling work. So we've set that up as a system. We've got mentors all over the country. Wow. 
Wow. We've employed a psychologist now who's online. Any franchisee anywhere in Australia, anywhere in the world, can actually contact someone who have a professional psychologist to speak to at no at no cost. Yeah. Done all these kinds of things that are happening as a result of that because it's it's not fundamentally it's not a business thing. It's 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 a, you have a moral responsibility. If something goes wrong, what could we have done? We had a, just a couple of weeks ago. We had a young man who was absolutely dreadful. He's he died as a result of an accident. Mm. Um, he, he was using a chainsaw with one hand and it came back and cut him up and he bled to death before the ambulance could get there. And that's mm. deeply shocking. So we go back and have a look at it. It's like a, we, we're actually revamping all of our training and everyone is going to get really intensive compulsory chainsaw. It doesn't matter whether you're going to use a chainsaw or not, we're going to do it, make it part of your induction course from now on and working with height certificates and just really what can we do about these kinds of issues? And it's not, ultimately, it's not a business thing. It's, 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 a, it's a moral thing. It's a personal thing. It's an emotional thing. Mm, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a really significant distinction you made. It's not a, it's not a business thing. It's actually a deeper at a deeper level. And as, as Jim's group, it's not, you know, yes, yes, we are a business, but we're a family. And we, it's not just getting better for the bottom line. It's, it's, it's getting better because we have a moral responsibility to each other and to our customers. Um, I want to ask you about uh, data. You know, you're, you're a researcher, you've done your PhD. Business-wise, what data do you pay the most attention to? Are there any numbers? Is there any research, any focus groups, any market research, any customer satisfaction scores? Is there anything that over the years has really come to the top to be your number that if you were going to look at one thing every day, that's the number you look at? Okay. The, the most important number in Jim's group is what we call the, the um, support score from franchisors. Every year, we run a confidential survey of franchisees. We actually email them, we ring them, we badger them. Um, <laughs> and we ask them about their franchisor. We say, okay, how often do they ring you? Um, weekly, monthly, less often. How, how quickly do they get back to you? Get straight back to you, take the call within 24 hours later. How helpful are they? Very helpful, less helpful. How many meetings you had the last six months? And how do you feel about your income? Not what you're making, but are your income good, satisfactory, poor? Now. What you do is you accumulate those scores, particularly the first three, and you give them a service score. So, mm. for example, we do awards. And if you're really, really, really good, you can get a diamond award. There's diamond, platinum, and gold. Mm -hmm. um, most franchises will get gold these days because the service is written so much. That is very, very important. It's a big awards ceremony and stuff. We don't actually recognize franchisors for growth or making money. We just recognize them for service as as um, decided by confidential surveys of franchisees. Franchisees <laughs> don't know who says what, unless they've only got one franchise, they wouldn't know. Yeah. They, they might see the comment, but they don't see the numbers. That is the single most important statistic in Jim's group. And after that, there's what we call, the, there's a survey rating. Uh, every time a franchisee does a job, we can lead to a job. After 10 days, we, we actually contact the customer and, and just ask them what the service was like. And if it's good, it's just very simple, good, bad, price, whatever, okay? And good is five stars, bad is one star, or anything wrong is one star, any complaint at all is one star. So that rating there is incredibly important way of understanding how well they're doing and providing rewards, incentives, 
um, encouragement, praise. Every time I talk to a franchisee, for example, I'll always look at their ratings and I'll congratulate them, which I usually do. Usually, they're, they're, these days, they're very, very good, most of them. Incredible. Um, and if they're not doing very well, then you can, you can hone in and say, okay, what's gone wrong? Why? Are, why are you, by the way, a, a bad rating lasts about 4.2. It's, it's not that difficult to... <laughs> But the good ones are like 4.8, 4.9, 5.0. I think more and more of those too. So that wow. that rating is very, very important. And the lovely thing about it too is it's, it's inherently positive because most franchisees get very good scores. The ones that get most upset is somebody who's got this unbreaking series of five stars and then <laughs> a bad rating. They will do anything to get rid of it. Yes, right. <laughs> they'll get their money back. They'll go and do the job all over again. It's 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 become a very big thing. And it's actually interesting since we've started doing this particular thing is when the levels of, of, of leaves have risen so dramatically, you know, yes. unbelievable. We, you know, we've actually, we, we take a certain amount of money, about 140 bucks. Our franchises pay on average about 8% of their turnover in fees. Not yeah. that way, but it's a base fee plus a lead fee. But um, we take about 140 bucks per month per franchisee for advertising, one of the really strange things in recent years is we had to start giving it back. We just can't spend it. I mean, <laughs> vision's like fencing a lot of mowing. We just, we've been like over a million dollars just, just recently because we just can't spend the money. Or sometimes <laughs> we get new uniforms and stuff because we just don't need the work. They're busy all year round. <laughs> I, I think there'll be a lot of listeners um, <laughs> who are leading uh in an organization or leading an organization where they're struggling for leads who are going to have their um their draw their drawers will be dropping at that and but i i think everything you've said there about what what you measure is the reason why because you've identified customer service as as king if we can just give undeniably back to when you were eight you know the <laughs> uh you know make sure that the person says wow, you know, I, and, and wow, I've never seen my lawn look so good across all of Jim's group. If you can do that and your franchisors treat your franchisees at that level and you treat your franchisors and your staff at that level, then it takes care of everything else. It does too. We had, we had a national conference once um, and uh, we had a guy called Brian Duckadout from the UK and this guy had, had decades of experience in franchising, um, many, many, many different systems. He was an expert in that area. And he said to me, he's never seen anything like the gym's culture ever, mm. which is that of, of genuine, real, passionate concern for franchisee welfare. Well, that is just a wonderful note to, um, to start, uh, I guess, wrapping up today, Jim. I would also love to uh, officially invite you back maybe for another round to chat more about some of the other thoughts you have on leadership in coming months or, you know, down the track. I, I've just enjoyed this so much and it's been just a joy to hear your story and also to get to know a little of your ethos around how you around how you do business yeah sure well, I, I i don't know if there's much else for me to say <laughs> very happy to talk uh, and did you have any final thoughts for listeners no i think that's pretty good actually i um i just think that one of the things people and i, and I guess is that is a self-interested pitch in a way but i think one of the things people don't understand is what incredible opportunities there are out there. Um, mm. the, the service industry in general doesn't mean to say gyms too in any any area is 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 fantastically open. You know the, the opportunity to grow, to develop, to have a great lifestyle in your own business is just 
it's just amazing. And I just, I get frustrated by the fact that people always think you've got to go to university and have a degree. And I should know that I spent 10 years at university and which was in <laughs> terms of earning potential had zero impact at all. But people just don't understand how, what amazing opportunities there are in, in the world of business and, and how just being focused on service and being focused on customers can get you so, so far. Absolutely. And if people are listening and are interested in, in Jim's group, where can they find you? In ter- you mentioned biohistory. Uh, what was the website? Biohistory. We just look up Jim's group, www.jims.net. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> that's where we are. We're not hard to, we're not hard to contact. And, uh, you know, if, if you want to email me direct, jim at jims.net, I'm, I'm very easy to contact. I don't give my phone out to anybody except franchisees, but I don't mind who emails me. Yeah, wonderful, Jim. Uh, well, I want to say thank you to our listeners for for tuning in, and uh, some of you who are leading in a role and looking uh, looking for a change and, and wanting something with a deeper meaning. Uh, particularly those who are who are Australia based, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people uh, jumping jumping onto email Jim at jims.net um, because it's been just a wonderful testament to Jim's group today. Also, a reminder for our listeners that you we also have a couple of other. Uh, podcast, the John O'White Leadership Podcast, where I just give you content. The recent one I did was the seven rules for uh, for raising great leaders. And so there's some content there and the leadership question of the day, where I put a stone in your shoe and ask you a, a leadership question every day to help you grow as a leader. So thank you so much for listening. But uh, I really want to say thank you again to Jim Penman. It's just been honestly such a joy. I've got so many things uh, going around in my head from today's conversation that have been really challenging in the best possible way for me as a leader. And I know that'll be true for our listeners. So thank you, Jim, for coming on. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast as much as I did. If you're joining us for the first time, don't forget to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there, including our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from all over the world in all different roles, in different industries, answer these seven questions on leadership. And leaders give these in-depth answers around how they spend their time, uh, a book that's been significant for them. It's just a gold mine. It's completely free to access. So go to consultclarity.org and look for that. We'd also love to interview you about your leadership. I believe your experience, your life, your context means that you have advice on leadership that other leaders can learn from. Yes, you, if you're going, not me. Well, no, I really believe you would have something to add. So if you're looking for a way to give back, it's completely free to get involved. And we would love to interview you through the seven questions on leadership. You just go to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form and get involved. We have a free resource on our website called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook, 10 world-class leaders giving their thoughts on leadership, and that's completely free. It's available on our homepage, consultclarity.org, right at the top. So make sure you go and get that and download it today. And we have a free daily email that you can subscribe to. We send this out to over 15,000 leaders from around the world. And uh, it contains the highlights of content from our podcasts, our blogs, um, our books, books we're reading. It's got the best content 
and it gives you exclusive limited early access to our masterclasses, workshops, new products, special offers. It's all for our subscribers. You can go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe and join 15,000 other leaders. And you know, my gift to you is to work really hard, particularly through the Leadership Conversations podcast. I have been blown away by the quality of the leaders and I'm learning as much as anyone in doing these interviews. So I'm having a great time. And my gift to you is to keep lining up the best leaders I can to invest in your leadership. Your gift to me, if you're finding this helpful, there is something that you could do that would help us out massively. And that is to write a review and to leave a rating for our podcast or wherever you're watching or listening to this. I can't tell you how much that helps us out. Also subscribe or follow. It really does make a difference in helping us to help more leaders become everything they're meant to be. Another thing that means a lot to me personally is when I see our community share our content. So if you do share this or any other piece of content on social media, then thank you and and please do that. And look for me, John O. White, or clarity and tag us in your post. Our team is always looking for posts to engage with from our community. And there's also a chance that we'll share your content uh, to go beyond and share it with our followers. Last of all, you can check out my book. It's called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because 50% of the coaching sessions I have with leaders, this topic comes up again and again and again. And it's this idea of how do I have this difficult conversation? How do I lead this person better when I'm finding them difficult? Or in some cases you look and you say, I think I might be leading a difficult person. They're just quite difficult to lead or I'm finding them quite difficult to lead. So there's a three-step process that I unpack in step up or step out. And the amazing thing, and I've literally done this myself and I've heard it anecdotally from other leaders as I've coached them, is that if you follow this process, you will see that person step up and change their behavior or make a decision, which is to step out some of the time. Uh, 95% of the time, people will step up or step out in just four weeks. And I stand by that. It's uh, You have to read the book to understand, but uh, I really do believe in it and I've experienced it firsthand. It works. So you can go to Amazon, look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White or store.consultclarity.org forward slash book. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode next time of the Leadership Conversations podcast. And I hope today has helped you to take another step towards becoming the leader you're meant to be. See you next time.